Welcome to another edition of Surgeons Lives. I'm your host, John Monson. You're not going to want to miss this um, interview because it's really quite extraordinary. Um, Dr. Vivian McAllister uh, is on the one level, um, a recently retired liver transplant surgeon from London, Ontario, Irish by background. His uh, pathway to becoming uh, a stalwart of the transplant community in Canada was unusual to say the least. However, he uh, indeed was a huge success, but that's nothing to what he then started to do when he was a mere 51 years of age. He became involved in the Canadian Royal First Forces um, and developed a second career, if you like, um, uh, in military surgery, having been deployed multiple times to Kandahar, where he developed uh, extraordinary skills and experience um, in catastrophe surgery, trauma surgery, obviously, and training individuals in, in this specialty. He's recently become an adjunct professor in uh, the Department of History in the university, um, and is moving on to... Um, a more thoughtful rather than action-laden uh, uh, phase of his career. Honours and awards have come his way. Um, uh, they are many and varied, including um, uh, honorary fellowship at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. He is, has been president of the James IV um, Association of Surgeons and in 2021, um, became uh, an officer of the Order of Canada, an extraordinary um, uh, recognition for his contributions to not just Canada, but um, surgery. So um, don't miss this interview. Um, it's essentially a full hour. The first half is about his transplant life, and the second half approximately is um, his military uh, career. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Um, my name is John Monson, and this is Surgeons Lives. Thank you, Vivian, for joining today. Um, uh, so what I normally ask people to do, and I will ask you to, to do as well, is to start it off, start us off by uh, a brief um, life journey resume, starting with the words I was born in. <laughs> I was born in a nursing home in Dublin. In those days, um, ladies would go to these old houses and have their babies with the help of nurses. And I, I don't actually know which one. I don't you think don't? you wanted that sort of detail, but <laughs> <laughs> things changed a lot after. Well, I can um, tell you, I can tell you, Vivian. <laughs> that I myself was born in the Hatch Street nursing home in Dublin. Exactly the same story yeah. that you're saying. Yes, yeah. And uh, going by our age, our parents, our mothers were probably there around the same time. But it was a different time. I, I grew up uh, in a um, very privileged situation, really. My father's a dentist and we never wanted for anything. But education was uh, prized in our house. My grandfather was a doctor uh, and the other grandfather was an army man. So we we had nothing to give the children except their education. Uh, and I was fortunate to have a, a really 
privileged education where my friends, the friends that I made then, remain my friends today. And this uh, continued in Trinity, uh, where we both did medicine. And uh, I think you'll attest to the fact that our class remains very, very friendly on, on personal terms, as well as having shared a lot of professional experiences. Uh, and I think that set the tenor for my life, to be quite honest, uh, that I've always worked with people. Uh, I've always tried to get on with people and um, I've enjoyed their company, uh, you know. So in all the tasks that I did, uh, it was always in the company of others and feeding off the expertise of others and learning from them and hoping not to disgrace myself, really. That's I spent my entire life trying to avoid making errors or stupid, stupid mistakes that uh, I would regret later. And I think, by and large, I think I did, but uh, I did my best. Now, after Trinity, um, I did the usual house jobs that we did, internship first, and then um, uh, the six-monthly jobs as senior house officer, as we were called. And it was clear to me that uh, I'd have to get into practice relatively soon. And I chose family medicine first. And after doing a few locums in Ireland, uh, I actually emigrated to Canada where the jobs were better. And I ended up in northern Saskatchewan, uh, very north, actually, north of Lake Athabasca in a town called Uranium City. And um, it was clear what that town did. Uh, but uh, it was a small town with an indigenous population and a mining community. Uh, and I really enjoyed it there. I had to hide the name of the town from my wife or she wouldn't have accompanied me uh, there. But uh, having got there, we actually had a wonderful year. Um, it was out in the wilds where we began to enjoy nature uh, as well as the uh, job. And the job uh, forced you to innovate because you were, you know, out in the boonies and you didn't have the same support that you would have in the city. Uh, and with other doctors who were there, I was part of a team of doctors. <clears throat> we managed to provide excellent service. I think. And another aspect of my life that started then is um, I flew every week about 100 miles or more in small planes to various uh, reserves where we provided medical clinics. And then I took patients home and we looked after them in the hospital in Uranium City and then brought them back. But it also gave me an insight into life uh, on uh, in First Nations communities up north. Uh, I got to know these uh, communities very, very well. They expected me every week, and uh, they welcomed me. It was a wonderful experience, and I think that also set a tenor for me. So, uh, um, I'm I'm guessing that you were in. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, you were in northern Saskatchewan in this area as, as part of the immigration deal, um, etc., to an underserved... There was no deal, <clears throat> John. No? Actually, it was very generous in Canada. You didn't have to okay. sign up. It was that the job was available. Okay. And in actual fact, <clears throat> the only reason I ended up there was I used to... I was a very um, 
faithful attender at the hospital library when the British Medical Journal used to come in. And the librarian thought I was very studious. But in fact, all I did was flick it to the back <laughs> to look at the overseas jobs. And it was one of those that I went to. So, so at this stage, you were still um, a family practitioner, um, albeit yeah. in a very different environment. General practitioner, I think we'd call it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Really. But uh, um, for families, but we never paid much attention to the uh, that notion. It right. was really just looking after the nuts and bolts of of healthcare. Was your mind? Uh, I mean, had you were were you in? Being a general practitioner as a frustrated surgeon, or had it ever crossed your mind at this point? Well, no, I would have chosen surgery um, if there was a, a clear path available to us in Dublin. So I did enjoy the kind of technical side of, I mm -hmm. suppose, care, uh, um, but it wasn't really just the hands-on stuff. It was actually... And I've I discovered that much later was decision making. Surgery is really about decision making, uh, and you have to uh, commit at a certain stage to a diagnosis uh, and to a, a line of treatment. That what they needed up north was somebody who would just make the the uh, undertake the kind of the what was necessary necessary uh, for uh, health to main be maintained. So it wasn't really as much a social side of things. It was right. really they, they they were very particular about just getting what they needed for care. They had other other means of looking after themselves socially. And how long were you there? I spent a year there. And uh, actually what happened in the midst of my year, uh, they closed the mine. And that was, that would paid to that. If it was something that had gone on a long time, I, I actually enjoyed it so much, I think I'd nearly be there today. Right. Um, right. But they reduced the size of the medical component, and yeah. I was the last doctor in, so the first doctor out. Uh, and then we moved to southern Saskatchewan to another small town, but on the prairie with a very different uh, type of required requirement. I did actually have, as a solo doctor in the town, a hospital with an operating room. Uh, I used to do deliveries there, and uh, I had eight beds in the hospital. Wow. And that terrified me, uh, doing deliveries yeah. for patients without having surgical backup Yes, was really, really worrisome. I made a deal with a neighboring doctor who was a surgeon um that if i got in trouble he would come to the town and because i didn't even have an ambulance in those days it was quite extraordinary that, that we had healthcare in the 1980s that was very much the same as healthcare in the 1900s no when you were in dublin you were as you said earlier um flicking through the back pages of the bmj looking for through the situations vacant um, section. And were you still doing that now in, in Saskatchewan, you know, for this? Uh, because you, you're where your career, um, I was going to say ended, uh, it was a very bad <laughs> word, but where your, career, where your career 
culminated it could not have been further in terms of um from you know a single-handed doc in saskatchewan to part of you know a transplant team i mean it's it is the opposite ends polar opposites i think it'd be polar opposites yeah and i've told all of students that i've mentored never worry about your cv when you look at your cv in retrospect it all looks like it was planned and it was the perfect plan a very unusual but perfect plan because actually when i got to transplantation there was nothing that was more important uh to a surgeon than to be a very broad-minded surgeon you you yeah. were hit with things from all sorts of directions that you'd never expect infections that nobody had heard of in either the western world or hadn't heard of for 50 years and these were turning up in transplant patients and very unusual surgical situations and things where you had to innovate so to have a background in uh, austere circumstances is actually perfect training for a transplant surgeon but <clears throat> that was all in the future and certainly not much that it, my career happened by happenstance as much as anything else although i, I made decisions and cho took choices yeah uh, you know so, determined so, so what was the break point where you decided to do take surgery seriously so it was actually a tragic uh, occurrence uh, my young brother 21 years old was uh a student in the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, medical student, and he died in a car accident. Oh, goodness. Uh, so we had been in Canada for a few years at that stage. My mother had also died young. So my father was on his own and my brothers and sisters were at home. And I felt we should make a break and go come home for a while. Our children were also at an age where uh, if they were to experience uh, growing up in Ireland, and it was such a nice experience for myself and my wife, Christiane, that we felt they would really enjoy uh, that opportunity. So we took this opportunity to take a break from the career and go back. And then having going back, I didn't really know what to do because it's not easy to switch as a, a family doctor from Canada to uh, a practice in Ireland. It, the job situation was just as bad then yeah. and i really didn't relish the idea of getting s stuck in doing locums or something like that so mm. uh i actually took an opportunity to renew an acquaintance with a surgeon brian hargan who had been registrar in sir patrick dunn's when i was an intern and who actually had taught me a lot of surgery as a as a young student um to become his I think I'd have forgotten. I must have been a senior house officer again when he had, was a surgeon in NACE. Right. So I did that one for a year with Brian and Graham Fry, who was also uh, a surgeon with a very interesting background yes. who had done uh, surgery in Africa and was doing neurosurgery in Dublin and then did general surgery and then finally left the surgery field altogether. But... A very interesting uh, person and yes, who, who um, 
I, I knew Graham and and his brother Ed, um, and Graham, of course, went into tropical medicine. Um, yep, that was, which I think he uh, still does. Yeah, yeah. So at this stage, you know, following the you had followed a non traditional pathway for all sorts Absolutely, of reasons, yeah. um, and would have been would have uh, you know perceived as you say in retrospect it's all a master plan a cunning plan that you put together but at the time you would have been you know perceived as being behind your you know contemporaries in terms of pathway did you mm-hmm. did you did that stress you at all or did you were you I enjoyed that very much so at that stage I made the commitment let's let's get our surgery training uh, one way or another and um, get the exams and return to Canada maybe after three or four years. That was the plan, if I made any plan at all. And I had to complete the surgery exams in Dublin. So there's the primary surgery exam, and I'm not sure if they still do it, but it was a very difficult exam, as you remember. Uh, It involved anatomy, physiology, biochemistry, the basic sciences, uh, and examined to a high degree with a large failure rate. So I enrolled in uh, a course at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, which was taken in the evenings and in the weekends uh, to study for this. And as you say, I was about maybe three or four years older uh, than the others in the course. Uh, But I enjoyed their company tremendously. And we were a great study group. Uh, They they, uh, made me gave me the opportunity to pass that exam easily. The other thing I, I discovered was that the rules in the College of Surgeons in Ireland were still very old-fashioned. So I actually qualified by experience to do the final exam as well, if I had the primary. <laughs> so I was in the office there, and I said, I'm going to apply for both. <laughs> and. I've forgotten the name of the lady. I was a lovely lady of the office. And she said, well, now look, Dr. McAllister, um, there is a, there is one problem. And I said, well, what's that? But we're not giving you the feedback if you fail the primary. <laughs> oh, I've forgotten what the fee was, about 50 pounds or something. It was wonderful. So I said, I, that's a chance I'm going to take. And I actually did both exams in the one sitting. And... Uh, suddenly found myself with the FRCSI and uh, applied for, I was in the applications for junior registrar jobs. So Uh, almost in one fell swoop, you'd (laughs) almost caught up those three years you were missing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, well, as you say, it was all a master plan. Um, so, <laughs> so then you went back to Canada? No, not quite. Um, so as a junior registrar, I did various jobs in Dublin, all wonderful jobs, and giving me experience in areas that uh, were all being developed. So in, in St. James's, I did colorectal surgery. I, I spent... A long time, I, I was very bad at research, but I spent days and days doing uh, anorectal manometry, which was ban- brand new in those days. And the, one of the uh, things in Ireland, which is, people may not understand, but 
condoms were very hard to get. And um, <laughs> we, for some reason, used these for the pressure monitoring. And um, we used to send the, the most junior of the thing to the chemist, as we were called, <laughs> to buy the condoms. <laughs> and on one occasion, I... Uh, I was doing uh, manometry and the condom came loose and I left it in the patient's rectum. And I explained it to her and she said, oh, my God. <laughs> she wouldn't leave unless I retrieved it. So <laughs> we had we didn't have a sigmoidoscope in the, in the lab. I had to go and get the sigmoidoscope and finally take the thing out for her. <laughs> <laughs> But you survived, and she I survived. survived, and I learned a lot doing that. I then went and I did some vascular surgery with Vincent Keevney and um, you know, and Dennis Megan. And I thought, oh, well, that's good. I think I like vascular. I'll try that. <laughs> and I was rescued from that by Nilo Higgins, who was the professor of surgery. And Nile has a special personality who's He's an excellent teacher, uh, but for some reason, he didn't have a registrar for the upcoming session, and he asked if I would do it. And I was also asked to be the um, tutor for uh, St. Vincent's Hospital UCD medical students. And so I did those two jobs for maybe 18 months. Uh, and in the process, it changed my career completely. So instead of becoming... Uh, a general surgeon that will go back to become a what in Canada became known as a community surgeon. Um, I would uh, became kind of an academic surgeon, and I did transplantation. <laughs> so did you uh, did you um, start effectively start your transplantation training when you went back to Canada, or did you start it in Ireland? So in Ireland, we were starting transplantation yes. very yeah. early. And the first uh, operations, I was like a junior on the team. Uh, and I had some experience of that. We had two teams. One would go for the donor. And then we, would do, we were doing the recipient at the same time. And uh, there were very, very difficult experiences. And a lot of... Uh, People just couldn't hack it. But for me, my first transplants were actually done in Dublin. Right. Uh, but I was very, very junior on the team. Um, but I learned an awful lot uh, from that. You know, my my transplant training was in London, Ontario, under Bill Wall. And that was a formal transplant fellowship, as well as liver surgery. I did kidney transplant as well uh, during those two so years. You went back to... Um... You went back yes. to um to, I came to, back to London. Canada and it was it served two purposes. One it was an entree back into the surgery yep. community in Canada. Uh I also qualified for the uh with my training to date in my FRCSI plus the years as a registrar for the Canadian exams, which were exit exams. <clears throat> so I did those uh in the first few months I went back did my transplant fellowship. And as you say, I caught up. <laughs> I now had basic general surgery training, specialist surgery training, my fellowships, and uh, I put the train back on the, the regular track. 
and you essentially spent the rest of your career um, uh, in um, organ transplantation in 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 London. Yeah. So, but in Canada, we uh, the transplant team are also integral to the general surgery service. So there was very few uh, transplant only surgeons. I mean, virtually all of us were general surgeons as well. Uh, we were do, doing a lot of uh, of general surgery uh, on call, as well as doing specialist liver um, uh, surgery. And we then we came known as the surgeons to go to if you're in trouble. So we would be doing the rescue surgeries as well. And so that became uh, a pattern for all general surgeons, all transplant general yeah. surgeons uh, in Canada. And I was in that. I went to from London to Halifax. And I was looking after transplantation there as part of a smaller team. But we were uh, very important because we not only looked after the people of Nova Scotia, but we also looked after the other three Atlantic provinces. So I had this experience of being a referral surgeon from four provinces. Wow. Uh, and I could I learned to deal with four different governments. And that gave me another little bit of experience that just using some Irish bravado, I was able to do. I'll give you an example. When uh, Tacrolimus became available, it was FK507, it was called. It wasn't available yeah. in Canada. It was only a research uh, uh, medication. But it was instead of cyclosporin. Now, cyclosporin had been brought in, and it was actually being available free uh, under a special program for transplant uh, patients and it requires you to measure the the level of the drug. Well, tacrolimus is very similar, and it also required these. Um, it required subsidy, and it had to, I had to get uh, tests done. So I arranged with the lab, and the lab said to me, "Well, how am I going to get paid for this?" And uh, even though we have a, a national health system, uh, they're paid for individual tests yeah. and things. And uh, I said, well, how are you paid for cyclosporin? And he said, well, it's, uh, he gave a, a number that was associated with that test. So what I did was called up first Prince Edward Island and asked for the Minister of Health, put straight through and was chatting to him and said, look, I've got a new drug I really need it for your patients. Uh, I want you just to change line zero, zero, whatever, uh, to cyclosporin or tacrolimus. And he said, oh, right, oh. He did that. Then I called Newfoundland, and they did it. Then I knew New Brunswick, for some reason, always my heart province. I went back to Nova Scotia. They did it. And then I went to New Brunswick, and I said, your patients are coming home on Tacrolimus, so um, you'll need to change uh, this. And he said, beg your pardon? And I said, well, the, if you have any trouble, just ask the your counterparts in any of the other provinces. <laughs> <laughs> so overnight, I got it registered in four provinces, and it took another three years before Ontario would do it. Wow, yeah. <laughs> so a man we were of way great ahead of power. A man yes, of great uh, power. Yeah. Now, you, you mentioned earlier on, um, uh, Vivian, that you know your granddad was a doc, and mm -hmm. your, um, I think it was an uncle, was in the army. My, grand, my other grandfather was your other the grandfather army. was in the yeah. army um and um you know the other 
Apart from a stellar career in organ transplantation and contributing, you know, very significantly to healthcare in Canada, you've had this other string to your bow, which um, for such a a (laughs) mild-mannered, softly-spoken individual um, would perhaps seem surprising to the casual observer. Do you want to uh, tell us that story? Well, in Nova Scotia, uh, there's a Navy base, Army bases, and it's important uh, in the Canadian Armed Forces in the Eastern Command and the Atlantic uh, Command. And uh, we had quite a few doctors on faculty who were uh, also uh, in the armed forces. And we also trained residents. So I trained many residents who were in the armed forces. And um, I became familiar with them. Uh, I was also conscious of history. So I knew about Canada's history. I knew about our own history in Ireland and through my own grandfather, etc. And I also, as I described earlier, surgeons, um, I just, I found how surgeons played a very important role in society, that they weren't just your technical mm. uh, health restorer. Actually, there's there's a, a different, uh, an important role that we pay as members of the community. And uh, I had this feeling that you know, one had to, I've been given great opportunities, uh, great privilege, and that, the, you know, at some stage I might have to pay it back. And uh, that was the definitely the history of world wars and things like that. But very fortunately for me in the 1990s, uh, there was uh, really no wars or anything that we would be asked to contribute to. But that all changed with 9-11 and uh, with... The, uh, then the wars, I suppose, on terrorism uh, or whatever they're going to be called in the future. Um, and uh, Canadian soldiers started to die in Afghanistan, but which was the first time uh, that this had really happened since the Korean War, although we had uh, occasional deaths on deployment, never under the same situations that mm-hmm. they were facing uh, in Afghanistan. And my ex-residents were in the armed forces and were deploying over there. And actually one resident who was a medical student with me first, actually did some sort of project in the lab and then went on and did anesthesia, uh, was over there and he gave a talk. uh, And here is this experience of having a young, young person uh, give a talk about doing very, very difficult things. Uh, overseas and it was one of these after dinner talks and a few glasses of red wine in had liberated my thoughts and I got up and said you know chaps we shouldn't be sending the young people over to face this uh, that if anything we should be going and if any minds are to be destroyed it, it should be ours because really we've had a had a good go of it and I, I said that <laughs> But I, I really didn't think it through. And at the end of the talk, he said, well, do you want to go? <laughs> and and what, what, age were you, an what age were you then, Vivian? Uh, I was 51. Right. 
So um, too old enough to know better, you know. <laughs> old enough to know better, but I actually did mean what I said. Yeah. And I did deploy then as uh, an augment, an augmentative surgeon uh, as a civilian in 2007. And having gone over there, uh, and I was in Kandahar, on the Kandahar airfield in the hospital there, and looking after patients that I had never dreamt would uh, I'd ever have to look after. Um, I uh, decided to join the team. I did have a lot of experience. Uh, prior to that, there was a, uh, one of my residents said he didn't want to go to the military hospital because they were, they were doing virtually nothing there. That was in the 1990s. And he said, could I stay with you for a fellowship? And I had said to him, well, I don't think the army wants uh, transplant surgeons. So we, can, we can't make it a transplant fellowship. Yeah. So how about we, and I'm not a trauma surgeon, so we won't dare call it trauma surgery. So we changed the fellowship and we called it catastrophe surgery. <laughs> <laughs> so catastrophe, I invented the whole field of catastrophe surgery for this uh, chap and it's we we decided the definition was either looking after a lot of patients who suffer injuries in the catastrophe or looking after one patient with catastrophic injuries and i said the only thing you've to tell you you must promise me is that when you t uh, talk to them about your fellowship I and mean, he did a lot of very good surgery he did donor surgeries mm -hmm. uh, transplant surgeries looking at it from the perspective of a general surgeon I said, is that you're not allowed to tell them that we have created most of the catastrophes that you have fixed. <laughs> <laughs> from, from a purely educational perspective, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, do, I mean, I do remember um, uh, seeing uh, the front of your laptop um one day with a, a talk that I've never forgotten, the title of the talk, which was Do-It-Yourself Neurosurgery, um, <laughs> which uh, which um, I think, you know, reflected the fact, I think you told me at the time that it was just you and an orthopedic surgeon found yourself having yes, to yeah, do everything. Is that correct? That's correct. And the dentist. Actually, the dentist was also very helpful. Um, the three of us could cover eye injuries, we, I did what I call superficial neurosurgery. So I stayed on the surface of the brain. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the hardest part I found of neurosurgery is the craniotomy. And mm -hmm. luckily, um, the Taliban had done the craniotomy on a lot of the patients already. So they, it wasn't as difficult as it looked. It was basically superficial cleanup uh, and try and stop bleeding and things like that. And it's a, it's a um, it's a silly question because it's it's it doesn't um, get answered in a simple in a simple sentence to answer. But um, can you try and give me some senses on your multiple deployments over numerous years? What did you learn from that? Oh, it changed me completely. Um, first of all, you know you're all your whole life priorities change and uh, life's short, life's cheap. So enjoy it and, um, you know, make sure that those around you are enjoying their lives too. Um, the 
I mean, it was clear difference between my lifestyle at home and the life of the people in Afghanistan. I got to know them very well. My experience up north in uh, Saskatchewan in Canada uh, with First Nations people and reserves was very useful in trying to ad um, adjust to their way of thinking and understanding things from their perspective. Um, so there was that. I mean, all the way I did surgery changed too. Uh, I did an awful lot of repeat surgeries because we, we at this that stage thought of, we even had a metric that returning to the operating room was considered a yeah. uh, an error. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> over there, I did it on purpose. I, I would do temporary surgery, put them uh, away and come back later because we had too many to do in one go. And that was, it became known as... Um, resuscitation surgery I forgot now what we called it but uh, I mean the uh, the whole plan of that I, I then started to use it in general surgery a lot as well I did things like um, and when I was doing things like that I wouldn't pack the abdomen as we still do I don't like leaving the abdomen wide open and putting uh, vac dressings on and then constantly doing that and then you have this dreadful situation where you just can't close the abdomen easily at all. Uh, I would close the skin and just leave it uh, like that. Sometimes with drain, obviously with drains, it was going to be wet and um, bring them back in 48 hours, something like that. And snip the stitches and off we go. And I use techniques anyway that I had developed there. We uh, used to close skin with uh, Vicro, which was Again, not something that was uh, thought wise mm -hmm. at home. But the reason it came out was the Dutch surgeon. He said, oh, we do this to all the drug addicts because they never come back for their stitches. So, yeah. <laughs> and it turned out, I, I, I did this for, for Afghan patients. And they some of them did come back and the wounds were brilliant. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Occasionally, there was a little thread still there and I just yeah. did a rub and thread falls out because it had dissolved but so it, anyway i learned techniques i suppose and i learned life stories life life lessons so I, one of the um interviews i i've done in this uh in this channel um was with a surgeon who in the space of two or three years had um about three significant brushes with his own mortality um you know, major heart event and cancer and one thing or another. And in a, in a short time frame, um, uh, you know, it, it very much moved him um, to, to use phrases that you've just used, you know, that life is short and, um, you know, to focus on the positive things in life and how you're blessed and, and not be stressed about, you know, conflict and issues and just leave that side of your life aside. It redefines priorities. And it's it's almost, um, your description is almost the same. Uh, luckily, you didn't suffer, you know, the personal um, brushes with mortality, although nominally, of course, being deployed is exactly that. But um but if you you take what I'm saying, and in, in that it was uh, I was never injured, thankfully. 
Yeah, I mean, it was a life-defining area. I mean, a, a period for you to that really redefined you. But you know, I've just brought all of the experience that we all have prior to that to bear. It, it, to some extent, has I think it just makes things more acute. It uh, makes you it brings them together, so you have to reflect and make decisions. So um, not different. We're so if I was, if I was to ask you, you know, how you would advise or guide young trainees who don't, you know, thankfully have to, hopefully would not have to face personal health brushes with mortality to make them open their eyes or go um, to. Uh, conflicts around the world to do that but you know could you how would you advise them and guide them bringing your wisdom or pearls or advice to um to their managing their life as we you know because part of this it seems to me speaks to the issue of burnout um and stress that's going on and you know the thing that i you know hear talking to you and my previous interview is that stress no longer features as a as a major feature um as a consequence of those life experiences is that a fair comment um no well stress <laughs> there's different forms of stress yes mm. and um i did i mean there was part of my career where i was really just going from one battle to the next i mean one operation to the next hoping to succeed and ready to fail at any second and it was it was very stressful mm -hmm. um, and uh, i think that uh, maybe i would be able to handle that sort of thing a little more differently now there are some advantages on deployment um, so we, we operated a lot. We operated on very sick and very uh, badly injured people. We, we were working in circumstances where a lot of people were very underprivileged and you would look after them and know that they would leave your place and go to uh, a really rotten situation. Um, and it, it, that would provide a lot of stress. But the, there were two things. One is... I looked after myself, so we didn't have anything to do except eat, sleep, work. Mm -hmm. And that actually is very relaxing. <laughs> so occasionally, if I was going through a bad patch here with an awful lot of work, I would go in the same mode and say to, look, go enjoy yourselves to the family, but I've got to sleep. I'm going to go to sleep during the day. I'm going to sleep at naps and naps and I'm going to keep myself just to get these this task uh, done. So I was able to compartmentalize it maybe a little bit. Uh, the other thing, though, is that if you look at the strategies of life, and these are strategies for war, strategies for surgeons, strategies for patients who are ill, we always look too close to ourselves. We should be looking with a further horizon. Mm. Keep saying, okay, I'm going to win this particular battle. I'll get this operation done. What's after that? How, how far do you go? And in, in terms of wars, I, I developed the notion 
when I wrote about it was um, instead of trying to win battles, what you should actually be trying to win is the peace. Yeah. Assuming this war is going to be over, uh, we're, we need to win what's going to come after it. And uh, a lot of times are we're a bit short-sighted on that. And uh, for now, we're in trouble in Afghanistan. I think we'll win the peace in Afghanistan mm. uh, eventually. But it has to go through a longer phase. Uh, but for your own life, it's also the same. Think in a, a, a longer horizon than you're currently facing. So, uh, you know, residents who are stressing about getting their first job and things like that, said, it only takes one job. So don't worry about it. And it honestly doesn't really matter where it is. Once you go there and you make a, a, a real serious effort to, to be a good surgeon, You'd be just amazed at the doors that open for yeah. you, and you can do you can do anything. Think think way down the road for yourself. So right now you're um, on a another journey, um, which is um, you know the the retirement journey. Um, it's it's for some people it's a it's a defined date. For others, it's it's never. Um, and for many people, it's it's a period of transitional time. Um, tell me about your thoughts about <clears throat> what's your what's your thinking about um, when people should retire, and and how did that influence, or how is that influencing your own um, decisions? Um, yeah, very good point. I really don't know the quite the answer, but I know what happened to me. I, I mean, I didn't really anticipate retirement, but I did start to define like what I was doing as a, a surgeon, and I did not want to be anything but the best. I had to be the best of everybody, the person that you would call when you're in trouble, and and I'd have the wisdom to try and help people through and things like that. And I thought maybe I could play that type of a role uh, going forward. But the type of surgery I've done, all the all the different uh, surgeries I've done, you're not you're nothing unless you're doing it. So yeah. you've got to be actually doing it. And I I set a target for myself. Let's see if I'll go to sixty eight, and I'll 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 quit then. Uh, then the pandemic uh, came and. So I went through that and uh, I did a lot of uh, pandemic preparedness and um, uh, general surgery call and we continued transplantation all through it and I felt got to do that. Then when we started to emerge from the pandemic I felt rather exhausted and um, I've, I had restricted my practice to transplantation but just suddenly got the feeling this is not going to work that the others are getting better uh, i'm not going to be the best i'm and i definitely don't want to be um, uh, a burden to any team so i kind of more or less precipitously quit at the age of 66 and uh, i haven't regretted it at all Everybody's asked me, do you miss it? And I said, no, I think I've really done all I could. And I'm so delighted that I didn't disgrace myself as I worried about all the way through my career that I kept 
doing what I thought was right for patients and doing it in the best manner that they could get at that time. So you you made that decision in in the way that you describe, uh, you know, and um, amongst the interviews I've had, uh, you know, I've asked this question of several surgeons, obviously, and um, you know, um, one surgeon uh, it'll it'll be coming out very shortly. So he, he it's in his interview with uh, Barry Solky, who is you know a legendary high BD surgeon, and and he. He spent time making sure that he had a colleague watching him so that, he, like you, he didn't want to suddenly discover to his dismay that he'd, you know, he'd lost it, if you like, and, and he was too long doing it. Another surgeon, um, in fact, you, if you watch the first um, interview, which was with Jeff Matthews in Chicago, um you know, he he was saying that he thinks surgeons should um, do a voluntary cognitive and psychomotor testing from the age of sixty, a non-punitive one, um, but you know, just that sort of thing. That's I mean, there are multiple. You made the decision yourself. You you didn't have. Um, oh, I did. I did. I did try some of those other things. I wasn't worried about my technical uh, abilities right. actually at all at this stage. But I was more worried about was decision making yeah i've always believed that surgery is really decision making it's not the <clears throat> the technical thing for a, a long period of my surgery and for a lot of my surgery i actually was really just exposing things to be done and a resident or a fellow would be yeah. putting the stitches in and things i found that more accurate because i would be able to watch it more carefully yeah. Yeah. um and of course, I did rescues. If things weren't working out, I, I would do the rescue. But at the same time, a lot of the surgery, technical side of the surgery, wasn't a problem. Yeah. Uh, it's really it's really about decisions. I had some difficult patients in the, at the very end who young patients, I had one young COVID-positive patient who had fulminant liver failure, unknown cause, but had been using drugs and things. And... Um, it was a real battle. I, I fought long and hard to get her transplant. And it was, you know, there were many people saying, you can't do it in a COVID patient. I said, well, not only will I do it in a COVID patient, but I'll take a COVID positive donor, if you could give me one of those, because they weren't being used at the mm -hmm. time. And anyway, that battle wore me out. Um, and I felt, that, you know, that here is an older person forcing the situation where all those around her all around me are thinking has he is, is he off has he gone off the wall altogether um so i thought actually you will reach a stage when if you you have to be in uh, uh if you worked with a team maybe and you let others make those fight those battles um then maybe you could be uh, protected but your age will always be brought against you yeah. with respect to decision-making. And surgery is a, a risky operation, uh, a risky task that uh, there will be failures. There has to yeah. be failures. There wouldn't mm -hmm. be any risk if there were no failures. And you have to be able to review and say, I made all the right decisions. Uh, and that's that was the one that really drove me to mm -hmm. quit precipitously. 
to say so, I, I probably can't battle it anymore. Re recently, or um, not, uh, in some time ago, you were um, um, honored by um, Canada um, for your service to Canada and service to medicine, etc. Um, and um, I'm sure it was um, an extraordinary experience for you and um, enormous congratulations on that. But what I was going to ask you was, it's, um, it's a measure of definition of success for people, particularly, as you know, in the in what would be the remnants of the colonial system, the honors system, et cetera, et cetera. But um, uh, what I was going to ask you was, um, how would you, how do you define your success? Well, I, I um, certainly did not define it as trying to achieve prizes or awards. Um, but when they do arrive, I really feel felt quite emotional and as much about the award but it was really about the people who promoted me who nominated me and went to bat uh, for me uh, that I didn't know that that was happening I never knew that level of support was out there um, I think for me I mean there are all sorts of small successes where I was only out at breakfast uh, with um, a colleague in the diner and uh, a patient came up to me. Fortunately, I remembered her name. And because that's, I have a trouble with names. It's, I've always had it. And uh, she was about uh, 11 years from a Tlatskin tumor that I removed. So, and I had remembered everything about her. So that was wonderful. <laughs> I mean, that's a, uh, a terrific feeling that you get of yeah. say, oh, that, I, I'm so happy that that happened. Uh, and I suppose as many of those experiences as you can have are measures of your uh, yeah. success. Mm -hmm. uh, and to have mm -hmm. colleagues who thought that you did reasonably well, uh, that's a, that's also a measure of, of success. And, um, you know, I guess a similar, on, on a similar vein, um, how would you, how would you like to be remembered, and how do you think you will be remembered? Yeah, I, I don't think you'll be remembered. So that's that's the simplest answer to that. Actually, uh, what all through my career, um, I would do things in surgery, and I'd say, uh, Dennis Megan showed me that this. It was uh, Rafe Keane showed me a knot that they he learned in Baltimore. And I I tell people, oh, Dr. Keane, or Mr. Keane showed me this knot. Uh, it's low profile. You know the way that people would get these um, PDS and nylon sutures and then they'd make a, a, like a ponytail. Uh, and so I'd operate on a, an abscess and I'd discover this thing about three inches long. I said, what the heck is this? Why did you have to put so many knots in this? Anyway, a low pro. It was the first low profile knot, and I tell everybody, and I was still doing it right at the very end, and I, a few that uh, tips and things. so. If I would be remembered as I would prefer, it'd be somebody telling somebody, "Oh, McAllister showed me this or that," and that that'll be enough. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. 
<laughs> yes, well, as I often say to people, um, uh, I, I, I remember somebody being asked, um, I mean, the late great Paddy Collins used to say, none of us, in, there's nobody called Mozart in this room. Um, so <laughs> the only people that will remember you are your patients and your students. And I think that's a pretty accurate thing, as you've just described, I mean, the two pieces uh, of the equation. And, um, you know, I remember somebody being asked the same question many years ago, and, and his answer was, I just would. Um, which I also think is a, is a reasonable answer. But the reality is, as you say, I mean, time moves on and, and people's memories are, are short unless you have something special. So do you have anything just in the last minute or two? Do you have a bucket list? And if you do, is there anything on it? So I, I change gears. Uh, having uh, stopped as surgeon, I actually... I got the opportunity to join the Department of History in our university here, and I'm an adjunct professor. And I've mm. been undertaking a, com a combination of um, uh, projects looking at history from maybe around the First World War and the early 20th century, mainly at doctors and where there is an intersection of between uh, the medical and the political or uh, general field of of uh, human experience and uh, then i start to apply a little bit of, to some of the problems that are being faced today because i think surgeons actually have a couple of uh, skills that are very useful uh, for both um, decision makers uh, <clears throat> in in uh, politics uh, as well as historians and that is we have developed a power of observation where we try and get as much information in situations where it's not always available uh, to make very astute decisions, guesses maybe, um, but decisions that have to be made. Somebody you have to make some sort of a decision uh, and surgeons are good at that. And we try to figure out where the forces are that mm -hmm. are at play in, 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 in a patient's care. You know, what type of patient do we have uh, what sort of illness, how much surgery can they tolerate and how can I do a reconstruction? Um, and all of these things are exactly the same when you look at uh, the great events in the world. There are people who, it's not that history repeats itself, but the people are the same. And then if you could figure out the forces that are at play, you can actually understand uh, a little more mm. about it. So it you're... happened to me in, in Iraq once. We were um, uh, there when ISIS was carrying on, and um, the special forces were with us in the medical uh, area, and their intelligence was saying that they they won't move down south uh, for until after Christmas. But I had already found out that the uh, what was called the PML. The Popular mobilization, uh, PMF, popular mobilization, had already moved. They were the Iran-backed uh, thing, and I don't know how I knew that. It was maybe from some other conversation. I said, "No, no, I don't think so." They're going on Tuesday, <laughs> and uh, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> and we were all—they all came back to me and said, "How did you know that?" And um, 
<laughs> it's kind of obvious just looking at the forces that are at play. So we ended up doing a mobile medical surgical uh, unit to uh, address that particular uh, activity yeah. that happens. Sometimes important to listen to all the voices around you. So Vivian, listen, it's been an absolute pleasure um, talking to you for uh, the last um, short time. Um, it's been a fascinating story um, with um, many extraordinary experiences and and a life of um, of great achievement. And um, I think you're a you are a, um, a great role model for any aspiring surgeon. So I'm very grateful to you to um, for spending uh, the time. And um, I'm sure that um, this conversation, when it appears on to the assembled millions uh, of the YouTube channel, will be um, will be a very popular viewing. So thank you so very much indeed. Thank you, John. So I have one question for you. Yes, sir. Who's doing your interview? <laughs> well, it's very interesting, actually. Um, you are, I think, the fourth person to ask me that question. And um, I, my continuing answer is, um, as yet, that's undecided.